Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. told you we had a lot of kids in this church. It's fun. It's enjoyable. So because we're on Facebook, I can't give the exact location of this because it goes across the whole world, but our church has gone to South Asia many times on mission trips. And one of the interesting things that happens when you go into the villages, we go to these remote villages and we do a lot of evangelism, we do humanitarian aid, we hand out hygiene items, and, and you come to a person's house, or should I say a person's hut, and those of you that have gone before know exactly what I'm talking about. You come to a person's hut, and they have a, a little bit of a porch there, and they're so excited to see you that they start bringing out these plastic chairs, and they line these chairs up and they want you as the guest to sit in the chair while they sit on the floor below you. And as an American, this feels really awkward. It feels really weird to be sitting on the chairs while the, the other people are sitting on the floor before you. And you soon realize that to refuse the chair is really, really rude. You actually want to take the chair because to them, it's the seat of honor. You're sitting in a seat of honor. You've come into their home. And so for us Americans, it feels really weird because we're elevated up there on the porch and we're sitting in these plastic chairs and, and they're sitting on the floor. And it feels really awkward to do that. And you realize when you go to foreign countries, the cultural differences between Americans and other nations. Now, some of you have been flying Southwest Airlines for years. I've flown Southwest Airlines. Some of you may have never flown Southwest Airlines, but the very first time you fly Southwest Airlines, it's a little confusing because there are no assigned seats. You're assigned a section like A or B, and if you happen to um, log in late, you get like C60. Those of you that have flown Southwest know what C60 means. That means you're sitting at the back of the plane between two line blackers, and you're in a middle seat, and you have nowhere to go. And so Southwest is very interesting because you'd think that everybody is just kind of jockeying for position, and it's a mad dash to get into your seats, but it's actually pretty calm, cool, and collected when you fly Southwest. And, and so there are no signed seats on Southwest, but people just seem to be able to know where they're supposed to sit. Now, you may say, why do I bring up places to sit? Why are you talking about sitting on chairs in a foreign country? Why are you talking about sitting on unassigned seats on Southwest Airlines? What's the big deal about seats, Pastor Sean? Well, in our passage of Scripture this morning, it's all about seats. It's all about who gets to sit where. It's all about being seated in a place of honor toward the front. So before we dive into our text today, I just want to remind us, I want to step back and, and give a context here. This, this should be a review, okay? What are the two greatest commandments? Well, let's listen to Jesus tell us in Mark 12, 28-31. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? 
And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Very, very basic. What's the first and greatest commandment? Love God with everything that you are. What's the second greatest commandment? Love others as yourself. So let me ask you the most fundamental, the most important, the most life-changing question I can ask you. Here's the question. What is your ultimate purpose in life? What's your ultimate aim in life? What should your heart be in life be? And it's simply this. This should be every single Christian's life motto, your purpose. It's this. You and I should seek the glory of God and the good of others. It's as simple as that. What's your purpose, Pastor Sean? To seek the glory of God and the good of others. It's basically the first and second commandment to love God and to love others, to seek the glory of God and to seek the good of others. So we glorify God in all that we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything's to God's glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to do what? To please Him. We make it our aim in life to please, to glorify the Lord. And then as was read earlier, Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Seek the glory of God and the good of others. That should be your life motto, your life purpose. But here's the problem. Sin. We have sin in our life, and so here's the issue. We don't often glorify God the way we should, and we don't often seek the good of others the way that we should. So let's ask the question, what keeps us from seeking the glory of God and the good of others? What prevents us from doing that? Well, here's the answer, and we find it in our passage of Scripture this morning. Here's the answer. Pride, pride keeps us from seeking the glory of God and the good of others. If that's our ultimate aim in life, to glorify God and to seek the good of others, pride prevents us from doing that. So how does God respond to pride? How does God feel about pride? Well, Proverbs 8.13 the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. It's God speaking. I hate pride, God says. Proverbs eleven twelve. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 1 John 2, 16-17 For all this in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jonathan Edwards said this about pride. He said, quote, Pride is the worst viper in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. The worst kind of viper. Edwards would say, pride is like a viper deep in your soul, ready to spring out into attack. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about pride. (laughs) It's the only way Spurgeon can do it. He called pride a brainless thing, as well as a groundless thing, for it brings no profit with it. There is no wisdom in self-exaltation. It's a brainless thing, pride. It's a viper of the soul. So let's see Jesus' final time that he heals on the Sabbath. And it's in the home of the ruler of the Pharisees. It's, it's like they went to church, and after church, the Pharisee invited Jesus over for lunch. And here's the issue of what's going on in this home. It's full of hypocrisy. It's full of pride. And Jesus, as the man of integrity, is the true Son of God, when he steps into the room, pride does not like the presence of the Savior because he's going to expose the heart of those that are there. So let's see this unfold this morning. Pretenders can't stand to be in in the presence of Jesus because he exposes the heart. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this passage fits nicely into three sections. Verses 1 through 6, we actually see the healing itself. In verses 7 through 9, you see the parable told. And then in verses 10 and 11, you see the punchline or the main point that Jesus drives home with the parable. So let's explore these three sections and the truths which they reveal in these three sections. So let's, let's look at verses 1 through 6. Here's the first thing that we see. We see the sin of spiritual superiority. We see the sin of spiritual superiority. Now, this is the last time Jesus would heal on the Sabbath day, and he's in the house of one of the ruler of the synagogues. Now, 
Why did they invite Jesus to eat with them? We don't know. But what we do know is what verse 1 tells us. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now if you look at the original language, that's an ominous type of watching. That's kind of watching with suspicion. Watching with the intent to trap Jesus up. They're scrutinizing him. It's, there's malice involved in it. And we know this has been their, their pattern because back in Luke 11, 53-54, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So they're eyeing Jesus with the intent to trap him. And then a man with dropsy enters the room. Now you may ask, what's dropsy? Dropsy is the older medical term. The newer medical term is called edema. Here's what dropsy or edema is. It's basically the buildup of excess fluid in your body, and it's really as a result of, of organ failure, especially congestive heart failure. If, if your organs and, 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 and start failing, you will get edema, and it causes swelling, especially of the lower extremities, but it could cause swelling anywhere. So this, this man here is swelling significantly from a medical condition. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but most scholars believe that he was probably a plant. He was, he was there as a trap. He was brought in to trap Jesus, which really shows the cold-hearted nature of these Pharisees. They're willing to use a guy with a medical condition just to trap up Jesus. So they bring him in there, And Jesus has resolute sovereignty, as we saw last week. He's always in control of the situation. So he knows it's a trap. He knows they're watching him carefully. And so instead of them being in charge of the situation, he's the one that's in charge. And notice, he begins asking the questions. Verse 3. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Simple question. Is it, is, it, is it according to God's law that we can heal on the Sabbath? Is healing on the Sabbath part of God's law? If I heal, am I going to break the Sabbath? And they remained silent. Okay, he heals the man, sends the man away in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he asks another question. Which of you having a son or an ox who's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Obviously, if there's a medical necessity, you could break the Sabbath, even according to the Old Testament law. And so Jesus says, listen, if your son falls into a well, are you going to, quote, unquote, break the Sabbath and go save him? Yes, you're going to go save your son because he's going to die if you don't. Same thing with your ox. If your ox goes and falls into a well, aren't you immediately going to go, quote, unquote, break the Sabbath so that your ox doesn't drown? Yet this is a hypothetical question. The issue is there's a real person standing in front of them who has a real medical condition. Now, it may not be life-threatening, but it's a medical condition nonetheless. So what's more important to Jesus? Hypothetical man-made rules or a person right in front of them with a legitimate need? It's the man right in front of them that needs healing. Now, why did the Pharisees remain silent twice? Verse 4, they remained silent. Verse 6, they could not reply to these things. Why are they silent? If they said yes, 
to Jesus, they would have given legitimacy to his ministry. They would have said, okay, Jesus, you're the one in control. You're in charge. Yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They would have basically given legitimacy to Jesus' ministry of healing and given him the green light to go ahead and heal this man. And that would have been Jesus would, would be the winner if they said yes. If they said no, it would show that they were cold, heartless, and didn't care about this man. So who's really setting the trap? Are the Pharisees setting the trap, or is Jesus setting the trap? Jesus is setting the trap to show the sin in their heart. And what's the sin? Spiritual superiority. Spiritual superiority. It's a sin that loves to trap people. To see people fumble, to scrutinize and look down upon others who don't live up to your man-made rules. I call it legalism on steroids. You have this unattainable standard that you want everybody else to meet, but you even can't meet it. And if those can't meet your unattainable man-made standard, you're going to look down upon them, you're going to spurn them, you're going to scrutinize them, you're going to look for ways to see them trip up. You have an air of superiority. What should have been their attitude, these Pharisees? Mercy. you got a guy there. That has a medical condition. He's not to be used. He's not to be manipulated. He needs mercy. And Jesus heals him. Yet they are showing spiritual superiority. It's almost like they think they can earn their salvation. They can earn merits with God by being superior. It's not salvation by works per se. It's salvation by superiority. And Jesus cuts them to the quick. Because all they can do is remain silent. They can't speak. They're caught. They're the ones that are trapped in their own sin. They've been exposed by the sovereign Savior. So we need to be very careful here ourselves that we don't give in to this sin. We can become overly rigid, overly legalistic, overly superior, not on biblical issues. I'm not talking about biblical issues that we've got to stand on. I'm talking about your own man-made preferences and your man-made rules and, and, and the things that you've just kind of made up for yourself. This is the way I do it. Don't be superior. And let me just stand up and say, I'm the first one in line that struggles with this sin. My parents bought me a t-shirt when I was six years old. It said this, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. That was my attitude as a kid. My parents bought me that shirt. <laughs> Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I think I've told you that story, too, about... I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for another day, but you're probably wondering what I'm going to say. So when I was five years old, that song by the Eagles came out. Take it to the limit one more time. Well, I argued with my parents until so I was blue in the face that it was take it to the wigget. They're like, no, Sean, let's take it to the limit. And I got in a knockdown, drag out fight with my parents saying, I am correct, it's take it to the wigget. And my parents are like, no, it's take it to the limit. And so to this day, it's a joke in our family. Every time that song comes on, it's take it to the wigget. And so even as a five-year-old, I had an air of superiority that I knew what the lyrics of the song were before my parents did. So yes, Pastor Sean, you struggle with spiritual superiority. So this is a message to myself. All right. Second sin that we see. The second sin, and this is in verses 7 through 8, when he begins to 
See what's going on here, Jesus. It's the sin of self-promotion. The sin of self-promotion. Now, notice what Jesus does. He knows how to read a room. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. They're jockeying for position. And Jesus sees these guys jockeying for position, and that's the impetus for him to tell this parable. Now, you you may ask, well, what's the setup here? Let me kind of tell you the setup of how these ancient houses were set up. So the host would invite people in, and you would have tables, like table number one, table number two, table number three, table number four. And So table number one was where the host would sit, and it was in a U-shaped So think of a U. The host would sit at the bottom of the U, and whoever sat at the right-hand side of the host was the most important. Whoever sat at the left hand was second most important. So you wanted to be at table number one at the right-hand side of the U. That's where you wanted to be. So everybody's kind of jockeying to get up to table number one. If you got into table number six, I mean, that, that wasn't good. You wanted to get up to the closest table. So it's a mad dash of political jockeying for position to get to the highest table. So you could be right next to the host. And so this parable that Jesus tells is very similar to Proverbs 25, 6 through 7. Proverbs 25, 6 through 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So what's Jesus saying here? Verse 8, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down, I'm going to paraphrase, do not sit down at table number one. Lest someone more distinguished by you come and you be moved. And they'll say, go sit down at table number six. You need to take the lowest place, because if not, you may be publicly humiliated. So if you sit at table number one, and somebody more important comes in, or somebody that the the host had invited and says, I'm sorry, sir, you're in the wrong position. You need to leave your position and go sit at table number six. You'll be publicly humiliated. Now, this happened to me one time, and not because I was being purposely menacing. I wasn't trying to jockey for position. It just so happened that that this happened to me. So when I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, on staff at my church, what was a man named Jamil Badri? Him and his brother Jamil and Jamal. If you've grown up in Colorado Springs, you kind of know those men. They had the Music Evangelism Foundation conference every year. It's a big music conference. They bring in big time orchestras and speakers. And so Jamil invited me to come here. Erwin Lutzer preach. And if you know who Erwin Lutzer is, um, he was the pastor of the famous Moody Bible Church in Chicago. He'd pastored there for 36 years. He he was on the radio at the time. He was like a big name pastor. And so I got there a little bit late, and so I saw a table at the front of this big banquet room, and, and I saw Jamil and his wife and, and some people I knew, and there was an empty seat. So I went and I sat in the empty seat. Got there a little bit late, so I sat there, waiting for things to start, waiting for the food to be served. And then Jamil came over and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Sean, I hate to tell you this, but you're in Erwin Lutzer's seat. You're going to have to get up and move. And we're standing room only, so you may not actually get to eat. You may have to sit out in the hallway and watch. Now, what did I do at that point? I'm not giving up my seat. I'm here to hear Erwin Lutzer preach. Well, it's his seat. If you want to hear him preach, he's going to have to sit where you're sitting. No, so I didn't even think twice. I got up and kind of sheepishly, embarrassedly <laughs> walked to the back and um, ended up you know, kind of having to get my seat you know, taken it. But according to quote, it was not my seat, it was his seat. So he was this big name pastor. 
And I was this no-name youth pastor, and so I gave up my seat to Erwin Lutzer. But here's the issue. These guys are trying to get the best seat in the house, jockeying for position, political maneuvering, self-promotion. i got to get to the top. It's selfish ambition. It's self-promotion. Listen to what James says about it. You may think, James, you're kind of strong here. Listen to the strength that James talks about, selfish ambition. So James 3, 14 through 16. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. When you often think of demonic activity, is the first thing you think about selfish ambition and jealousy? That's what James says. When you have selfish ambition and jealousy, he says it's demonic and you have every vile practice. So this self-promotion, this selfish ambition, it's more concerned with your public reputation. How you look in public is all that counts. You want to be the center of attention. You want to be on top and rejoice at the downfall of others. You tend to exaggerate your accomplishments to impress others. You tend to pad your resume and let everybody know your resume. You want everybody to know that you've entered the room. You want to be seen. There was a pastor I knew for many years. He will remain nameless. He was a pastor of a large church in Denver. And at every meeting that we had, whether it was like a committee meeting or whether it was a state convention meeting, he always had to make a grand entrance. And so... Almost invariably, we'd have one of these big-time worship services where like, you know, 300 people would be in the room, and he would wait till the praise team started praying, playing, and then he'd walk in from the back, and he'd walk all the way down, and he'd walk across the front, and he'd shake people's hands, and he'd look out into the audience, and he would make a big scene, and, he, and he'd stand there so that everybody knew he was coming into the room. And he did that almost every single time. Self-promotion. Salvation by recognition. I want to be recognized. I want to be first. I want to be on top. I want to have the best seat in the house. I want everybody to notice me. So we've seen two sins this morning. Spiritual superiority and selfish ambition or self-promotion. And both these sins prevent us from seeking the glory of God and the good of others. If you're promoting yourself, you're not promoting others. If you're seeking glory for yourself, you're not seeking the glory of God. So let's see the third aspect of this passage of Scripture this morning. Two sins, but third, we see the sacrifice of selfless humility the sacrifice of selfless humility now normally what comes last in a parable is the most important it's like the punchline it's the exclamation point that jesus puts at the end to kind of drive it home look at verse 10 when you're invited go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes he may say to you friend move up higher 
Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone, here's the punchline, here's the point. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, in the original language, you don't quite get it in your English translations, but when it says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, that's what we call a divine passive, meaning God's the one that's going to do it. God's going to humble you. You will be humbled by God. If you continue in this sin of spiritual superiority and self-promotion, God will sovereignly humble you. God will lower you. My former pastor said this, and I'll never forget it. He said this, better to humble yourself now before the Lord than to be humiliated later. Better to humble yourself now than to be humiliated later. 1 Peter 5, 5-6, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Humble yourselves so that you may be exalted. If it's the other way around, if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I was thinking this week about a person who was humiliated by God. And I was drawn to King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel? He's out strutting on the top of his rooftop, on the top of his palace, and he's out there, and he he looks out at his kingdom and says, look what I've built. You even find his words in Daniel chapter 4, verses 29 through 33. At the end of 12 months, he, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian king, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like a bird's claws. Strutting around on the top of his roof. Look what I've built to my glory. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm going to humiliate you, Nebuchadnezzar. So much so that for seven years, we may say seven weeks, it's a period of seven. We don't really know if it's seven years, seven weeks, seven months. A period of time, he's going to act like an animal. He's going to eat grass. He's going to have long hair. He's going to have really long fingernails. He's going to walk around like a crazy man. And God's going to do that to him, to humble him, to humiliate him. But then after a period of time, God restores the king back to sanity. And I want you to notice the change in Nebuchadnezzar's heart after being humiliated by the living God. If you go on to read in Daniel 4, 34 through 36, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. 
For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Do you see the change in Nebuchadnezzar? He exalted himself and was humiliated. And after he was humiliated, he finally said, okay, I'm going to exalt the Lord. It's God who's in charge of all things, not me. Don't be like King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be like these Pharisees. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Humble yourself. Seek the good of others. John Stott has said this. I love this quote from John Stott. He says this, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, listen to what he says, Pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride's our greatest enemy, but humility's our greatest friend if you want to grow to be more like Jesus. So, Jesus is saying here, take the lowest seat. Put others before yourself. Don't do things with selfish ambition. Don't do things with self-promotion. Humble yourselves before God and humble yourselves before others. Be selfless. Philippians 2, 3-4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Not only is this attitude of humility what we need to have towards other people, but really it's the beginning of the Christian life. Do you realize that humility is what we need in order to even be saved? The old hymn, Rock of Ages, one of my favorite lines from that hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Jesus, I'm bringing nothing to the table. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. We bring nothing to the table. Remember a few weeks ago when Jesus said he was the narrow door? He's the only way of salvation. You have to enter through the narrow door. Well, you can't enter through the narrow door if you're prideful and you're selfish and you're ambitious. You enter the narrow door through confession and repentance and brokenness and humility. You don't walk up to the door of salvation and fling it open and say, God, here I am. Aren't you glad to have me on your team? No. You come to the door of salvation and say, I don't even deserve to be here. And I'm broken before you, Jesus, because I know my sin and I know I'm a wretch. And I'm confessing in humility that I don't deserve salvation, but I'm coming to you with tears of repentance. Would you please save me? And Jesus says, yes, I will, and opens the door to the humble. Paul called himself the worst of sinners, the chiefest of all sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the worst, Paul says. Paul. I'm the worst of sinners. J.C. Ryle has said this, the man who really knows himself 
and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. He'll never be proud if you know who God is and who you are and what he's done to save you. You know, this wedding banquet that Jesus is talking about, and we'll get into this a little bit next week because he's kind of in this extended teaching here. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven does not depend upon your assertiveness or your opinion, but upon God who lets you in. Jesus was our ultimate example of humility. In that Philippians passage, Paul does something masterful. He gives the teaching. He says, don't be selfish. Don't, 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 don't be conceited. Look out for each other's interests. Be humble. And then he illustrates it with Jesus. And says, you want to know the perfect example of humility? Look at Jesus. So you go on to read in Philippians 2, 5-8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, what did Jesus do? He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus voluntarily left the glories of heaven to come and not only just live as a man, but to serve us and to die a cruel death on the cross. He went from the highest to the lowest. The highest of high to the lowest of low. The cross. He did not deserve to go there, but he chose to go there because he loved us. But then what did God do? When Jesus went from the highest of high to the lowest of lows, what, did Jesus, what happened to Jesus? The Father flips the script and highly exalts Jesus. You go on to read Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed, bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the path of Jesus. Humiliation comes before exaltation. And if that's the path of Jesus, that's the path of the followers of Jesus. Our path is humility before exaltation. We humble ourselves before a holy God. We humble ourselves before others. We walk this Christian life in humility. And then on the final day, God raises us to new life. God gives us our new bodies. God saves us by raising us from the dead, and we get to enter into heaven. We cast aside all pretension and self-promotion and superiority, and we trust in Jesus alone. The wonderful promise of the gospel is this. When you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. When you admit your weakness and you come before Jesus and you confess him as your Savior, at the end of the age, he raises you to new life. It's the path of humility before exaltation. It's the same path of Jesus. He went to the path of humility before the resurrection, before exaltation. Now, what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of that? If you continue exalting yourself, 
if you continue in spiritual superiority, if you continue in selfish ambition, if you continue down this path of self-promotion, you won't be exalted. You will be humiliated. You will be humiliated on that final day. Instead of being exalted to eternal life on heaven on that day, you will be humiliated to hell. Sin is a big deal to a holy God. So let's ask that ultimate question again. What should be your life mission? What should be your aim in life? What, what should you, Christian, attempt to be and do in your life? And we said it's very simply this, to seek the glory of God and the good of others. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what prevents you from doing that? Pride. Pride prevents you from seeking the glory of God and the good of others. And the Lord hates pride. So, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, and we come to His table, let's come with humility. Let's come with thankfulness. Let's come with joy because the gate of salvation has been opened to us when we did not deserve it and God has saved us by grace do you realize you have nothing to prove to God you can't prove anything to God you come in brokenness you come earlier as we sang in surrender you come in humility you come singing that old hymn rock of ages nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling I can't give you anything God I have nothing because I have nothing because I have empty hands of nothing to offer you. All I'm going to do is hang on to your cross because you're everything. So may we cling to the old rugged cross this morning with humility and thankfulness and joy because our sovereign Savior opened the door of salvation to us when he didn't have to. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together as a church family in humility and thankfulness for our sovereign Savior. We ask that you would please root out the sin of pride that lies like a viper deep in our hearts. How often, Lord, we are guilty of Spiritual superiority. How often we're guilty of self-promotion when we should be selfless and humble. In Jesus, we look to you as our greatest example. We're so thankful that you left the glories of heaven when you did not have to, but you chose to for us, and you came and you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross, and then you rose again, and God highly exalted you to the highest place. And if, Jesus, that's your path, that's our path. The path of humility before the path of honor. And, Lord, we know in our flesh it's so hard to put others before ourselves. We struggle with this. So, Holy Spirit, we need grace upon grace to be humble. 
So Holy Spirit, we're asking, would you produce that fruit in our hearts? Would you root out pride and would you plant humility there? And would it grow deeply and richly so that we can seek the glory of God above all things and the good of others? Lord, we don't want to seek our own glory and we don't want to harm others. We want to seek your glory and the good of others. And so, Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we come with joy, we come with thankfulness, we come with humility because you saved us by your precious blood that was shed for us, that we might be forgiven, we might be saved. And so, Lord, we, we have nothing to prove. We come with empty hands. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to your cross we cling this morning. And so we love you, Jesus. Let this be a time of joy, a time of worship, a time of celebration as we partake of the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.